Well, uh, good morning. On, um, on Monday, my wife and I got our little girls up to go to school. You know, stepping over toys and waking them up out of their sleep and helping them get breakfast and get their little backpacks you know, packed up and, and sending them on their way. And they hopped on the bus and they went to Turtle Lake Elementary just down the road. And we did the same thing on Tuesday and did the same thing on Wednesday and did the same thing on Thursday and did the same thing on Friday. And on Friday afternoon, our little girls came home safe. It, it's been a crazy week, hasn't it? And a lot of people have been struck really, really hard on what happened on, on, on Friday. And in fact, what happens to a number of people when a tragedy like this comes across their, their lives they ask the question, you know, how, how can you believe in the Bible in the face of such evil? How, how can you believe in the Bible when you see such evil? And I guess I see things differently. I don't know how you can see evil like that and not believe the Bible. Because the Bible describes this with such clarity and describes this reality with such reality. There's evil in our world. And it influences people. And they have evil impulses. And people act out on these. The Bible's accurate when it describes that we live in what, what the Bible, what we refer to as we read through the Bible, as a fallen world. I think the Bible nails it. This is a fallen world. It's a world that needs a savior. It's a world that needs a savior. And if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, God sent the savior that we need into our world. And he, it wasn't some myth that was just timeless in scope. The Bible says when and where this happened. God allowed himself to be testable. He left behind a testimony that said, my savior is going to be sent to Bethlehem. And my savior was sent in our reference point, about 2,000 years ago. And that's the season that we are in. That's the season we celebrate. And that's what we've been looking at here for the last couple of weeks. Last week, when we thought about, okay, God sent his Savior. He sent him in a time and a place. Last week, we talked about why Bethlehem. And in case you were stuck shoveling snow last week, here's a real quick review of that. Why Bethlehem? Well, anytime you ask a question of God, um, you can at best speculate based on what he's revealed to us. But, but here's, here's one of the reasons I, I believe God sent uh, his son to Bethlehem, to that specific place. Because Jesus' birth in the city of David confirmed that the ancient prophecies were being fulfilled. The city of David is a, is a name given to what town? Bethlehem. And if you look at these ancient, ancient prophecies that came way before the birth of Jesus... It was predicted there was going to be a child that was going to be born in Bethlehem. And this child wasn't just going to be born in the city of David. This child was going to be a descendant of David. And we read that that also was true. So these, this event of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and being a descendant of King David was one link to these greater promises. All right, well, that was one of the reasons. The other one we looked at, and this one was fun for me to, to actually see and see on a map. Bethlehem wasn't just the prophesied location. Bethlehem was also located right at the intersection of the emerging world. 
For those of you not familiar with where Bethlehem is, here's a map of the Israel area, modern Israel area. There in the middle, you can see Jerusalem. Well, Bethlehem was a little remote village not too far from Jerusalem, probably six or seven miles from, from Jerusalem. Now, there's where it looks like on a map of Israel. Now, let's zoom out. And you can see that the spot that's made a little lighter on the map, that's the region to which Jesus was sent. That is the region where Jesus ministered. That's where these events that we read about in the Bible took place, at least the ones surrounding Jesus' life. Now, what's interesting, you look at that place. If you were living at the time in the continent of Europe, if you were one of the the cities, the town, the people in Europe, and, and someone mentioned Bethlehem, you would have and described where it was, you'd think, Bethlehem, that's way over there. And if you were in Asia, in one of the, 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 the cities, the towns, the rural areas in Asia, and someone described where Bethlehem is, you'd be thinking, Bethlehem, that's way over there. And if you were in Africa, in one of the civilizations emerging in Africa, and someone was able to describe and, 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 and point to where Bethlehem is, you'd say, Bethlehem's way over there. But you look at it from a global perspective, where's Bethlehem? It's at the intersection of the emerging world. God knew what he was doing when he sent his Savior to Bethlehem. He knew what he was doing. So Bethlehem, now the, the thing that we want to talk about here a little bit more today is because that was last week, that was why Bethlehem. Let's press in today about why 2,000 years ago? Why not 3,000 years ago? Why not 4,000 years ago? Why 2,000 years ago? Well, the Bible itself answers that question. Here's, here's a passage out of the scriptures. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's from Galatians 4. 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. There wasn't just a geographical context here. There was also historical context as well. This wasn't just the right site. This was also the right time. And that's what we're going to press into today. The biblical accounts place Jesus at a real place at a real time. That's why we've got these big words here in front of you today. This this timeline that we're going to dig into. Laura came in uh, earlier on to give her announcement. She goes, you're going to talk about those words? today? So we're going to talk about those words. All right. We're going to, we're going to look at the historical context today, historical context. Um, and I want to show you something. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter two, Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now we read this account. This is one of the Christmas narratives and we read and specifically about the Magi. You can read this and your eyes can just kind of gloss over the words. But when you stop and really let those words soak in and you know some of the history behind it, you realize how profound this is. That that God has made himself testable. He's put himself in a real time period. Matthew does that in this account. Luke does it in his account. They, they, they say, here's when it happened. And we don't know the dating within the year, but we know the time periods based on the language used, based on the people they refer to, based on the occurrences. This happened on a timeline. And I also want to say before I start reading, we got a Christmas gift for you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. Uh, we have them in the back there. We keep them, uh, keep a stack in the back of the room. We'd love for you to take one for free uh, today. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. This is so loaded. Now, after Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, again, this passage is loaded. We won't have time to even scratch the surface. Uh, but we'll do the best we can with the time we have. This passage is loaded with historical jumping off points. Historical jumping off points. For instance, how did the Magi who lived in the East hear about Jewish prophecies? How did they hear? Well, in part because of the thing we're gonna, one of these things we're going to talk about in a, in a couple minutes. This dispersion. This great dispersion. How was it that travelers like the Magi, the wise men, who lived in a distant country, uh, land, how could they communicate easily? One of the reasons why, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, Hellenism, the influence of Hellenism. How was it that there were Jews who believed that the Christ was still yet to come? Why didn't they say when our temple got cleansed, this was it, he, that God had sent a savior, in part by what we're going to talk about here, this Hasmonean dynasty. And why did the passage we just read refer to Judah as Judea? Why? Well, in part, not in part, because of what we're going to talk about here, the Pax Romana. All right, and let me give you one more disclaimer before we go any further. Um, we're going to cover nearly 600 years of history in 10 minutes. <laughs> just so you know. So we're going to have to go as fast as I can. And the other thing that's just a given is we had to leave a whole lot out on the cutting room floor. More stuff I wrote in my notes here, more stuff than we could cram into a thousand Peter Jackson movies. I mean, there is, we left a lot of great stuff out. Um, and when I say great, I mean interesting, not great as in some of the things that were going on. Because some of the stuff we've left out are, are incidents of powerful rulers stealing their brothers' wives. We have, in this time period, we have people murdering their own families. We have powerful nations rising up and falling on the result of a single battle. We have men like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, who became the very type of person that used to appall him. We have loyalty and betrayal. We have heroism and cowardice. We have choice and destiny. There's so much that happened in these 600 years. And I'd encourage you, if you want to have a richer appreciation for passages like the one we just read, do some study. Do some study. There are a couple resources that I found really helpful. Um, I love my ESV study Bible. And there's this passage, this, the part that we're going to look at today primarily happens between the end of the Old Testament and the, and the start of the New. And they have this great little section in here, the time between the Testaments. And they go into more detail about some of these things. And if you want to go in more detail than that, here's a book I've recommended before. I put both of these in your notes. Uh, this is Jesus and the Gospels by Craig Bloomberg. Great stuff. In fact, the whole reason that we're actually doing this specific, specific topic today is when I was reading in all this history that either I didn't listen to when my Bible teacher was teaching it or something. Um, and so there's just great stuff, great stuff that we can't cover today. But let's, let's cover what we can in 10 minutes. Let's take out our notes if you haven't already, and let's get started. Let's work with this question, why 2,000 years ago? Well, let's talk about this first period of history. Now, I need to say with these periods... You know, it's tempting to try to put dates on here. The, the problem is the influence of this extends beyond right here. The influence of this extends beyond right here. The influence of this completely depends on what happens around it. And, and the influence here, you could say, started earlier. So, so th that's why we don't have the hard and fast dates here. But let's, let's talk about these periods starting with this idea of dispersion. And if none of these 
make any sense at all, um, don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it starting with right now. Near the dawn of recorded history, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And he said to this person, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham, as I make you into this great nation, it's in part because you're going to be a light to all the other nations. You are going to be an example of, of, of my people. You're going to be proclaiming through what I do in and through you. You're going to be proclaiming who I am. And so he made this great covenant with Abraham. And this covenant was extended to his descendants and through his descendants. Names like Jacob. Names like Moses. Names like Joshua. Names like David. These, these names that you see referred to over and over and over again in the Bible. So God had this great covenant that he made with his people. I will be your king. I will be your king. You don't even need an earthly king. I'll be your king. I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to work in and through you. I'm going to bless you. Well, instead of embracing that destiny, these people, at least as a whole, people chosen by God, they rejected his kingship. And they did what the Bible says was right in their own eyes. They wanted all the perks of having God as their king. They just didn't like that, well, he's the king part. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And despite God's grace, despite God's deliverance, despite God's faithfulness, there was warning after warning after warning after warning. After all that, God allowed the nation of Babylon to ultimately come and siege the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple. That event uh, in 586 B.C., um, that event dissolved them for all practical purposes as a nation. And the reason the word dispersion is used here, it had started before Babylon, but at this point it was extremely widespread. Now the people were dispersed. The Jewish people were dispersed. Some were still in that area, but some were carried off into exile. Some fled for their lives. Now the Jewish people were spread out all around the emerging world. They were dispersed. That's where this term came from. Now, this led to many significant developments, but here are two that specifically um, relate to what we're talking about today, this idea of, of the Messiah coming and, and how this was the right time and the right place. One of the things this did, we have both of them on here, but one of them it did it. It spread them physically out. The other is that it led them to reflect more deeply theologically. Let's talk about the just practical spreading out piece. And, and let's just use our scripture as the jumping off point. The Magi came from where, does it say? They came, the wise men came from the east. Where was Babylon in reference to Jerusalem? In the east. How did they, how did they know these sacred scriptures? They, they came because they were following what? What did the wise men say they were following? A star. How did they know? This is Numbers 24. I mean, how did they know the scripture? Numbers 24, 17 says, A star will come out of Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. How did they know that? How did they know to be looking for a star? They know in part because there were Jewish communities who brought with them these Jewish scriptures and were, were, were teaching about the one true God and his Messiah that he was going to send. So now, as a result of the dispersion, you have these Jewish communities all around the world, strategically placed. And people are hearing about the one true God before Jesus even comes on the scene. And the fact that this Christ was going to come in the city of David. But we have a two-parter here. 
this dispersion did more than just get them physically to other places. It also caused them to reflect more deeply. I, I am a firm believer, and, there, and there's people that disagree with me on this, but I am a firm believer that a tragedy doesn't um, cause a person to lose their faith. I don't believe that. I believe a tragedy will help you recognize how deep your faith roots go. And when the people of God were faced with this tragedy of tragedies, people being killed, friends and family, being dispersed from the land that was promised by God, watching your temple get destroyed, when, when they were faced with this tragedy, it forced them to ask hard questions and wrestle with deep, you know, the, theological, that isn't abstract. Theological, when done right, is, is as real as it gets. And they had, to, they had to ask questions like, how could a, and why would a good and gracious and powerful God allow his people to be defeated and exiled and his temple destroyed? They had to ask questions like, is God still good? Can God still be trusted? Was God still able to protect? And instead of being able to wrestle with these questions in the temple courts, now because they were dispersed and there were no temple courts, they were wrestling with these questions amongst their little communities. And you began to see over time the rise of what we call the synagogue. You began to see families doing what families were supposed to do all the way from the start. Talk about these things, discuss these things, pass them on to your kids. Because you didn't have the priest anymore. You didn't have the priest. What you did, you started to have teachers rise up. You started to have rabbis rise up. And you started to have people taking ownership of this. These are some of the things that God did, wrestling with these deep questions. They also began to recognize, we don't have a temple anymore. So keeping the law can't just be, I'm bringing the right animal for the right sacrifice. They began to get deeper than that. Some had already gone deeper, but this caused more people to go deeper and say, wait a minute, observing the law isn't just bringing the right animal at the right time. Keeping the law is do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So they began to wrestle deeper. And they also began to explore. You see in the writings of the Jews during this period, they began to explore other theological ideas that when Jesus arrived on the scene, you see Jesus addressing things about angels and eternal life and what true salvation really meant. So you see, tragic event. God was at work in this and preparing the world for his Savior. Well, let's, let's go to this next period. Around 330 B.C., I'm not a historian, but around 330 B.C., there was a man named Alexander the Great. How many have heard of him before in history classes? All right, you see, the Bible is grounded in history. Alexander the Great went in, in an unprecedented and probably unparalleled way. He, he and his army swept through this region swept through in such a short period of time when you, when, you, when you think of this. Swept through. And this word Hellenism is a word used to describe the influence that the Greek culture and Greek language brought about on the people. When Alexander the Great swept through, he instituted Greek as the language of the people that he had conquered. And the culture of the Greeks began to take root in this area, in the Middle East, all the way through Egypt. So this idea of Hellenism this word that, that we history now refers to this idea, this began to happen. Greek became a language that now united three continents. It served as the language of commerce and communication. And if you wanted to interact with the military, if you wanted to interact with the authorities, 
you needed to know at least a little bit of Greek. What was the New Testament written in? Greek. Why? Influence of Hellenism. What impact did that make? Now the word of God could go forth in a language that three continents could understand. We're only too deep in here. Now, when Alexander was ruling, especially during his early years, the Jewish people had a lot of freedom still to continue to worship their gods. Well, Alexander died, and when he died, there was some, I don't know a polite way to say this, some, some uh, disagreement regarding how this kingdom should be divided up. And ultimately, it got divided between four of his generals. <laughs> how well do you think that worked out? <laughs> four generals all trying to say, oh, let's all cooperate and play well together, fellas. Well, it actually wasn't horrible with those four, but it, it, it got worse and worse and worse over time. Until it got extremely bad under a guy named Antiochus. Antiochus. This guy was horrible. In fact, many people would say when you hear about Antichrist, boy, this guy really fits the bill. Antiochus IV. And that brings us into what led up to this next period that we're going to go into. Antiochus. This guy, um, he adopted a name for himself. And you see it there on the screen, which meant God manifest. The other people of the, around that area, they ascribed a different name to him. That's on the screens. What does that name mean? Madman, a little play on words there. He was. This guy was, he was certifiably insane. In, in about 168 B.C. or 167 B.C., Antiochus comes in. The temple had been rebuilt. He thinks it's a good idea to come into that temple and to erect an idol dedicated to Zeus. That sound like a good idea to you guys? No. And, and some historians say he actually sacrificed pigs, which were an unclean animal, in the holiest part of the temple. Does that sound like a good idea? No. So you've got the Jewish people. They come now to their, I've had all I can stands, I can't stands no more moment. And this old priest and his five sons lead a revolt. And they were successful. They defeated Antiochus and his forces. And that's what's known here as this, this Hasmonean dynasty. This is a name for some of the, the rulers of that time, this Hasmonean dynasty. So on the surface, on the surface, it looks like we've got our salvation. We, we now have defeated our enemies. I heard some, is that the tree? Is it, is it about ready to fall? All right. Just warn me. Our secret signal will be, look out, okay? That'll be our secret signal. All right, so what are you talking about? Hasmonean dynasty. So it looked like on the surface that everything was great. Looked like everything was great because now the temple was cleansed. In fact, the Jews, still today, many of them, recognized a special holiday that, that celebrates when the temple was delivered and restored and cleansed. What's that, what's that holiday? Hanukkah. All fits together, right? Hanukkah. So it looks like everything's great. We've got our folks ruling. We've got the temple is back online. It looks like everything's good. Well, here's what I want you to, to pull from this period of time. I believe this Hasmonean period demonstrates we need a Christ-like Savior. We need a Christ-like Savior because these Saviors came in and at first it was good, but this is a fallen world. And increasingly, the rulers became more immoral, more corrupt. And it got so bad that guess who the Jewish people called upon to help them? 
the Romans. Did you know that? It was the Israelites who invited Rome initially to come in to their country to save them. Instead of looking to God for help, they looked to another earthly savior in Rome, this emerging empire, said, will you come in and help us and kick out our, our guys? Uh, John Ortberg makes a great point in a book that I've referred to a lot of times. This book, um, uh, you'd think I'd remember the name of it. Uh, who was this man? Who was this man? He says this, and, and he, what he's commenting here, big picture, what he's commenting on is the idea that was, was it as simple as Jesus was right place, right time? And he would argue, no, I would wholeheartedly agree. He goes, well, maybe Jesus' impact was only the result of great timing. Maybe Jesus was just a sympathetic figure who happened to come along when Roman infrastructure was good, Greek philosophy was undermining the little g-gods, when paganism was dying, social systems were collapsing, when stability was down, anxiety was up, gullibility was strong, and... Maybe it was just dumb luck. Maybe Jesus was a kind, simple, innocent soul with a good mom and a knack for catchy sayings who showed up at the right place at the right time. Jesus Gump. His words, definitely not mine. You can email John wherever he lives at johnortberg.something. All right. Maybe Jesus' place in history is just a remarkable accident. Maybe it isn't. I think, at least for me, more than anything else, this period of time proves Jesus wasn't just right time, right place. He was something more. Because these guys, they did it. They cleansed the temple. They were militarily in charge. They appeared to have been the saviors that were promised. But something more was needed. Something more was needed. Not just this kind of earthly salvation. Something deeper, a deeper savior was needed. Okay, well, as I mentioned before, things got so bad during this time, Jewish leadership, who wasn't on the throne, reached out to an emerging superpower called Rome. They said, hey, will you come and help us? Oh, and they did. And it was on their terms. It was on their terms. This brings us to our last period of time. The Pax Romana made more of the world more accessible to more people more accessible to more people. When the Romans came in, and they came in, this is, I find this ironic, they, they came into Jerusalem not long after Spartacus tried to lead a revolt to say, we, we're trying to revolt against these guys. It wasn't long after that that the Jews are saying, we be our saviors. Isn't that ironic? They, they sent their folks, and after many years of conflict, Rome did restore order, but it was on their terms. In 40 BC, the Roman Senate declared Herod the Great to be the king of the Jews. A Roman Senate said, you're the king of the Jews. You're our guy, though. You're, you're only king as much as we say you're king. But they said, he's the king, king of the Jews. How did the Magi refer to Jesus? King of the Jews. Well, there's a whole message right there, huh? Well, three years after they declare Herod the king of the Jews, Herod recaptures Jerusalem. He remains on the throne through the birth of Jesus. He held the title king, but he was under the authority of Rome. And that's this whole idea of this Pax Romana. Let me get some more context here. Under Alexander the Great, improved communication, improved roads, these types of things, a shift from rural to urban was happening. So that's already happening before, but under these guys, it, it was exponentially more. Roman roads, some of them you can even still see today. 
Rome controlled this, this Pax Romana, what that means is Roman peace. They basically controlled this area and through their military strength were able to restore and, and, and have a sense of order. Their, their empire controlled a region that basically circled the Mediterranean Sea. It was a period of time when previously unstable areas were under the control of a single military force. It was a time when roads and shipping lanes made more of the world more accessible to more people. It was a time when communication and and commerce reached new levels of speed and scope. And it's interesting to see Jesus was born during the first and possibly the greatest of all the emperors, a man named Caesar Augustus. It was Caesar Augustus, a decree from his desk, that said, that sent Joseph from, where was Joseph living? Nazareth to Bethlehem. That was a decree from from his desk. It was the stability that Augustus brought that enabled travelers like the Magi to transport expensive cargo over longer distances. And when Joseph went to Egypt... Joseph didn't find a pharaoh with a 1,200-year grudge or 1,600-year grudge, did he? Who was now in control of that area in Egypt? It was Rome. And the Apostle Paul, a person we reference frequently, think of the number of times where the Apostle Paul, for those of you who don't know the Bible, how many times Paul was rescued by who? Romans. God used this. Did God intend it all along? He predicted it. Read Daniel 11, but, but he, he, at the very minimum, he used it. Well, you add all this up. You add all this up, and this is just scratching the surface. 600 years. You add all this up. This was the fullness of time. The old tribal distinctions and identities were breaking down. People were increasingly open to new ideas. Jews were strategically placed throughout the world, teaching others about the one true God, and many eagerly waiting the coming Messiah. The world was now more accessible to more people. A common language was carrying the word of God in written form, in a language that people could read. And now (coughs) you had urban centers. And that's huge because now you had urban centers. So if the word of God got to that urban center from that urban center, it could go out to the countryside. Can you see that this was a divinely appointed moment? This was the fullness of time. And there'd be some value in stopping right there. There'd be some value in saying, okay, this was the fullness of time. And look at this from an apologetic standpoint. Look at this. The, the, the Bible is amazing. Look at how all these things lined up. There'd be some value in stopping there. But I try to do two things every Sunday, or as a prepare for every Sunday. I try to ask the question, God, what do you want people to know? Okay, you got that. And then I ask the question, God, what do you want people to do? And, and, and as I wrestle with that question, here's, here's the final question. I'd encourage you to write down your notes, but more than write it down, let's wrestle with this. Jesus arrived at the fullness of time. It was a divinely appointed moment. How about you? Are you seizing your own divinely appointed moment? Take a look at what the Bible says about you. It says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. We have this beautiful passage in Psalm 139 where it talks about us being knit together. You you were knit together by God. He he took time and care on you. You were knit together. And then link that with what it says in Ephesians 2.10. You're not only God's workmanship, 
but, and you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, read this with me, God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You're not, you're not just appearing on the scene and God says, oh man, I got this thing over here that needs to get done. Who can I pick? He knew the thing that needed to get done. And he knit you together and he prepared beforehand you for your divinely appointed moment. And it may be one big thing, it may be several small things, but we have divinely appointed moments. Are you seizing them? You know, I, I think about last, uh, last week. And last week, that snow was coming down hard. And as I'm coming in, one of the first thoughts that came to my head is, oh, wow, I'm so glad we don't own a building right now. I can't even tell you how glad I am that we don't own a building. But then my second thought, and it's ironic that you guys are in the first row, my second thought was honestly this, I'm so glad that we had Tim Crenshaw and Del Hoffer because for five years, you guys pulled that trailer. Snow days, ice days, chipping away at that thing. Now, I'm not saying that was your purpose in life. That's not what God created you. <laughs> it was my goal now. I could die in peace. No, no. But, but what you did, you seized a moment. Because my little forerunner couldn't pick that thing up. And I couldn't back that big bad boy into that trailer. That, that space that you guys got it in and out of. And, and then... Just extrapolate off that. I think about all the way along our church. For those of you who've been around here for long periods of time, God has always sent us people who just seize these little moments. And I don't want to minimize your life to say that this was the purpose you were created. All I want to do is just highlight the fact that you seized moments. You know, look, I see Tim and Wendy Stenerson. I used to meet with Tim at that little shop, cough, not cough, like little lunch place over in New Brighton because I needed wisdom. Before we had elders, I, I said, I need some wise people that can speak into my life, and I would ask questions. And Wendy stepping up right from almost day one, you know, stepping up and helping us. There, there's the big picture idea people like the Loras who need someone to come around them and say, okay, now how do we make this happen? And you've been that for our kids. You know, I, I could go out. Ron, I saw Ron Wagon Connect earlier. Ron Wagon Connect, gifted person as far as caring for people. And, and Ron, are you in here? Oh, yeah, there he is, right there. Ron, the prepare test. You know, I... We have this, there's this thing called the prepare test that we have all our, our pre-marrieds take. I don't know how to make that happen. Ron knows how to make that happen. And for the last five years, every time one of our couples wants to get married, because Ron stepped forward to say, hey, I can help care for people. You know, we was, Our restaurant was uh, Khan's Mongolian Barbecue. I remember sitting across there and Ron just saying, hey, here are some things I can do. How can I help? You know, I, I think of all of these just along the way. I mean, you guys stepping forward for communion. You know, just being able to, to take that piece and to say, we can do this. We can serve this. And we could go on and on with worship. With all these, We have all these people who just said, you know, Rhonda, I mean, half the people in our church have been on your team at one time or another. Organizing. She does. She organizes the hospitality teams and the, the welcome teams. And, you know, I could just go on and on and on. People who have, have said, here's something I can do. And guess what, you guys? That's just Sunday. Are you seizing those define those... Um, those moments, divine moments, Monday through Saturday, because you have a mission field that is unique to you. You have people in your life that you are better equipped to reach out to, to pray for, to care for. 
I don't know your neighbors, but possibly you do. And who's better equipped to pray for them by name, by need, than you are? We also have unique families. Who's better equipped than you are to pray for your family and to try to be an agent of reconciliation, even when it's hard? You know, you, you have unique places of work. You have unique places, schools. You, you have unique situations, teams. And, and are you making yourself available to say, okay, God, in this situation, what would you have me to do? How can I serve you? And we don't just have those unique mission fields. We have unique gifts and abilities. I mean, some of you are good with numbers. Some of you are, are, are creative and artistic folks. Some of you have the best listening ears. Some of you feel called to intercession and to pray for other people. Some of you um, are able to, uh, to, to make things happen. You've got leadership gifts. You can organize people and, and bring them to, to places. Some of you uh, are f- fantastic at facilitating a small group discussion. I was just reading a book, um, a book called Radical, and they talked about this business guy. And this business guy, he, he ended up, they, they quoted a little speech that he gave. And the business guy in the speech, he says, you know, I'm making more money. I'm paying more money right now in taxes than I ever thought I'd make. And I was fine with that. I was fine just moving ahead with my life. And he said that I was fine with it until I found myself in Latin America at a dump and caring for folks there. And I saw this pregnant woman. And that wrecked me. She was looking for food. And she was going to be delivering a baby, you know, in this dump. And, and this guy didn't stop being a businessman. He just said, how can I leverage this for the kingdom of God? How can I inspire coworkers? How can I mobilize resources? He took he, where he was, he took where he was, and then he just said, God, what would you have me to do? So you've got a unique mission field. You've got unique talents and abilities. You know, we, we, we have our own divine moments. You also have a unique stage of life. Here's, here's one that follows you throughout your life. When you're a student, use, seize that moment to learn and to grow. You're never going to have a season where it's easier to do those things. In that book, Radical, they gave this example of a guy named David. And David, is, he was a student. He, he decided he was getting offers. When he graduated offers from MIT, they said, we'll pay for your college. Right out of school, hey, we'll get you a job. He said, no, 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 I'm not done yet. And, and I don't need your degrees. He, he, he decided to continue on with his studies. It was in engineering was his field. He said, so that I can take this engineering education and put it to use for the kingdom of God. And I can help go into areas that are under-resourced and I can help them. Here's how you build this well or here's how you can construct this deal. You know? So students, parents, you've got that as they get older. It it shifts, doesn't it? You've you've, You've got a special divinely appointed moment when they're babies, when they're kids, when they're teenagers. I think about retired folks. I, I was reading, again, this, this book, Radical. They, they talked about this couple. They got retired, and they're like, sweet. Now we can serve God full-time. You know? And the guy, Ed is his name, I think. Ed is, is down in some Latin American country, and he sleeps under this truck because of the gunfire because he's trying to get food to folks who are in the middle of a civil war. You know? You've got all these unique... We all have these unique, divinely appointed moments. Are we seizing them? As, and let me invite the worship band to come on up. And as, as, as they do, let me 
Let me just um, say a couple final words. I, I hope this isn't coming across as a guilt trip. You should not come out saying, I should feel miserable because I'm not doing more for God. You guys, this is an invitation. What better way to live than to do what God created you to do? Do you, do you get that? What better way to live than to do what God created you to do? What better way to go throughout a day than to seize a moment that God set up? And maybe by just you saying one word, maybe by you just doing one action, it sets off this whole trigger that you never expected. Isn't that more exciting? One of my new phrases that I'm going to use a lot is, life is more than defeating pixels. Guys especially. You know, playing all the video games all the time. Woohoo, I got to the next level. You defeated pixels. That's all you did. That means nothing. You defeated pixels. Why not go through life? Why not go through life where where we are being used by God to make a difference? All right, enough of my talking. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and do the Holy Spirit's thing. Father, forgive me because I, I think that through my words I can persuade. I can't. I confess that before you and all these people of the pride that I think by talking more, I can persuade. Holy Spirit, what we do now is we humbly pray for you to come and for you to change our hearts and minds so that we would fully say to you, come Lord Jesus. Savior that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. May we have humble hearts that would receive you this day. That following in your footsteps, we could seize our divine moments and that we could take the spirit that was in you, Christ, that you offer to us and we could have that spirit living and moving through us. That we could bring more and more of your salvation to this hurting and dark world. So Father, as your great works are proclaimed through these songs. Inhabit the praises of your people, we pray. And embed and invade our hearts and our minds with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.